You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, the UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features a paper from Narratives of Gendered Sexual Violence in Modern Ireland, which was a UCD Decade of Centenaries funded panel. The third paper in the panel was given by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD. The paper was entitled The Dublin Brigade in Kerry, 1923, Gendered Militancy and Violence Against Women During the Civil War. The panel was chaired by Dr Deirdre Foley from the University of Oxford. Dr Mary McAuliffe is a lecturer in gender studies in UCD, specialising in Irish women's and gender history. Her most recent publication was a biography of the feminist trade union activist and revolutionary woman Margaret Skinner, published by UCD Press in 2020. She's co-editor with Emily Pine and Miriam Houghton of Commemoration, Gender and the Post-Colonial Carceral State, which will be published by Manchester University Press in autumn of this year. Uh, She's the co-author of We Were There, 77 Women of the Easter Rising. Um, And she has published widely on other aspects of Irish women's history. Um, She's a former president of the WHAI and a current committee member. And um, we're very grateful for her service as co-organiser of this conference, which has gone off so well so far. So take it away, Mary. Uh, thank you very much, Deirdre, and thank you. I, 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 I'm just blown away with all the amazing panellists that have been on this um, uh, conference so far. I want to look at, as, as Deirdre said, Civil War in Kerry, 1922 to 23. Um, and in her Irish Historical Studies article entitled Violence Against Women in the Irish Civil War, uh, 22 to 23, a, a gender-based harm in a global perspective, Gemma Clark asks the question, How distinctive were women's interactions in the Irish Civil War? And a connected question, how useful is a gender framework for understanding these violent and transformative years in Irish history? This is a question I uh, aim to unpack in this paper in relation to the activities and experiences of, specifically, Republican anti-treaty women in Kerry during the period August 1922 to late summer 1923. I've chosen this 10 to 12 month time frame, not because there wasn't any violence in Kerry during the truce and early civil war period, and indeed, obviously, during the War of Independence, but because of the escalation of that violence after the Dublin Guard and other free state troops under the command of Brigadier Paddy O'Daly landed in Fianet at Sightrally on August the 2nd, 1922, when the Lady Wicklow steamed into port there with about 400 free state troops, including the Dublin Guard, on board. Once the Free State troops landed, their aim was to secure Freenet and March on Tralee. In the following days, most of the main towns, Tralee, Killarney, Castle Island, Kilorglan, were taken by Free State troops. And by August the 12th, under a force led by Commandant Thomas Scartine O'Connor, 
who would die within a matter of days um, in another battle. Uh, that town in Kinmare, along with Rathmore, Mill Street and Clarissavine, were taken. With all the main urban centres under its control, General Michael Collins, commander of the Free State Army, visited Tralee on August 12th, having earlier attended a requiem mass in Dublin for nine of the 11 Free State soldiers killed in those initial days. At the mass, he was, as he wrote to his fiancée, Kitty Kiernan, greatly moved by the heartbreaking scenes of poor women, mothers, sisters, wives, weeping and shrieking for their dead sons. Collins up to that point, as historian T. Ryle Dwyer um, has noted, recommended moderation in regards to Kerry. But as the Irish Times reported, while O'Daly and his troops had occupied some of the more important towns, the national forces were able to do very little else. The countryside belonged to the IRA. As O'Daly further noted, frustrated at this lack of progress, nobody asked me to take my kid gloves to Kerry and I didn't take them. One of his men, Lieutenant Neil Harrington, who would later actually um, um, be involved in the Kenmare case, as so uh, wonderfully outlined by Susan in her talk, in his memoir about the Kerry landing, describes the first responses of the anti-treaty IRA and of coming among women on, their, on the arrival of, of the men in Tefinet. Hannah O'Connor, who belonged to the A Company Tralee Coming Amon, ordered by her OC, Madge Kidney, left work and went to the Grand Hotel in the centre of the town, where girls from all three companies were setting up their first aid station. It's obvious that the women had planned for this. As O'Connor recalled, immediately after the outbreak of the Civil War, we began making field dressing and packing first aid kits. Tralee Coming Amon was ready. It is worth noting that the majority of members in all three companies were anti-treaty. Indeed, of the 154 pension applications from Kerry Cumann Amman women currently available on the Military Pensions Archive site, 139 mentioned Civil War anti-treaty activities. So we can take it that the majority of Cumann Amman in Kerry, the majority of Republican women were active in anti-treaty activism. And it is these activities and experiences of anti-treaty women during the Civil War in Kerry that I want to spend some time looking at now. Like most common among divisional and branch organizations, those in Kerry had been active during the War of Independence. Members describe in their pension applications, memoirs, personal reminiscences, etc., the activities we have come to expect from common among. They ran safe houses, protected arms dumps, did scouting and intelligence work, delivered arms and ammunitions to ambushes. During the Civil War, materials relating to the activities of those common among women indicate many continued undertaking similar duties as they had done during the War of Independence, but also reflect an increase in more militant, violent and traumatizing activities. And these are what I want to examine in order to understand how the women's activism and experiences force the historian to rethink, reanalyze and revision in the best way, the master, and I use that word uh, advisedly, narratives of war, violence and the impacts of civil war. As Hannah O'Connor and the A Company of Common Amon were setting up the first aid station in the Grand Hotel in, Tr in Tralee as the Dublin Guard advanced on Fienet, from Fienet, the action moved closer to them. Harrington describes how O'Connor and some Common Amon girls, uh, and obviously uh, he calls them girls throughout, as, as in so many memoirs, particularly of men, the Common Amon girls did the round of all the Republican positions in the town to familiarize themselves with, their posi with the positions for dispatch work. So you can see here uh, an organization of Common Amon who are used to doing war work. Others, such as Bridget Barrett, 
who would end up in Kilmainham Jail, were also in the thick of the fighting in Tralee. Uh, she came across one dead free state, free state soldier and stripped his body of his equipment and delivered it to the IRA according to her pension application. Barrett, as I mentioned, was one of several common among women who would be later arrested and imprisoned in Dublin. After the capture of Tralee, which fell very quickly, Cumann Amman, countywide, now threw their formidable energies behind the anti-treaty IRA. As Tom Doyle in his book, The Civil War in Kerry, has pointed out, given the central role uh, being in possession of arms and ammunition played in public order legislation, Kerry Command saw female activists as a loophole that needed to be closed off to secure more prosecutions. O'Daly, and his officers fully understood the vital role women could play as part of the anti-treaty campaign. Many of them had been uh, helped in their uh, work during the War of Independence, including O'Daly, who of course had been uh, intimate with Michael Collins's um, um, forces in Dublin uh, and how Cumann could help in this. So to facilitate uh, lessening the, the degree to which Cumann could help, in late November 1922, a room was set aside in the county jail at Moiderwell to accommodate female Republican prisoners. Many of the anti-treaty Republican women were involved in transportation of arms and ammunition during this period. And while 20 Kerry Republican female activists were imprisoned in Dublin, many others were arrested, imprisoned for periods of hours, days or weeks, and mistreated for their role in anti-treaty militant activism. O'Daly himself would come face to face with the militancy of women in an attack on a home of Michael Fleming, Fleming in Kilcommon near Killarney, uh, believing it to be the Republicans' East Kerry headquarters in August 1922. At the house, they called on the occupants to surrender. And as reported by newspapers, uh, Brigadier O'Daly himself, with some officers, led the troops into the house and called on all the occupants to line up in the shop. Those presents were, were still in bed and a lady, Miss Fleming, I believe, shouted down the stairs, wait till I dress. Uh, as they were waiting, O'Daly noticed that something was happening and a bomb was thrown down from the upper story. It exploded, one of the splinters hitting O'Daly on the tie and also wounding two others of the party. As reported by the newspapers, as well as finding and arresting three senior IRA men there, they also found rifles, revolvers, bombs and equipment. They then left about four o'clock in the morning, permitting Miss Fleming, despite the throwing of the bomb, to remain and look after the place. And this is indicative of what the uh, common Amman women were doing, running a safe houses, house, but also transporting bombs and equipment. And we will find that again and again. Interestingly, um, in one of the reports uh, by Tom Doyle on this attack in Kilcommon, he indicates that a young woman was wounded in the attack, and this probably was Miss Fleming, although he said she was not politically involved. However, the reports in the newspapers do indicate that Miss Fleming was very much part and parcel of what was going on in the home uh, as the Free State troops attacked. She was, however, lucky on this occasion. Other Republican women avoided imprisonment by going on the run for weeks or months at a time. In November 22, 1922, the Freeman's Journal reported that national troops arrested the following, Miss M. Bryan, High Street Killarney, Miss N. Hurley, uh, same, High Street Killarney, Miss O'Connor, New Street Killarney, and Miss O'Neill, uh, Kilgarvan. All were taken to Moiderwell Jail. On Public Naheran, the war edition of November the 4th, 1922, noted that three girls in Abbey, Abbey Dorney, which is in North Kerry, were arrested by Free State troops. 
failing to get them in, they are now filling Kerry jails with women. While this can be taken to some degree as anti-treaty hyperbole and propaganda, there is no doubt that O'Daly and the troops under his command in Kerry recognised the threat posed by the anti-treaty women and that they, and they were treated as a clear danger. One example um, is from the uh, pension fi- uh, application of anti-treaty militant Ellie Cotter of Lyra Compaon in North Kerry. Her home was raided several times by the National Army and she was threatened, as she notes, when one of them tapped me on the chest with a revolver and another stater put a gun to my jaw, wanting me to give up the arms dumps. Other attacks on anti-treaty women include an extraordinary night in Killarney in September 1922, when, and I quote, armed men raided certain houses, dragged six girls from uh, their beds who sympathises with the, uh, who sympathised with the irregulars and painted their bodies with green paint. As reported in the Irish Independent, Brigadier O'Daly, who oversees the national forces in town, is investigating the matter and has promised to mete out extreme measures to the culprit. The outrage is universally condemned. However, this was like putting uh, the porter in charge of of, uh, all these incidences and nothing more, it seems, was heard of the incident from O'Daly or from anyone else in the Kerry command. In late October 1922, newspapers reported a new departure. When 10 very active girls of Common Amman organization were arrested in their homes in Tralee, others evaded arrest. Those taken into custody were lodged in Tralee female prison. Additionally, it was reported that during a roundup over a big area between Abidorni and Kilflynn, again in North Kerry, on Wednesday morning, 35 prisoners were taken in, including three Common Amman girls known to be active irregular agents. In late November in Castle Gregory in West Kerry, Uh, Newspapers reported that some active irregulars were captured, including two girls who were in possession, uh, who were found in possession of bombs. Militant women were to be feared. The violence escalated into late 1922 and early 1923. In January 1923, the Cork Examiner reported that Ethel and Sheila Sheila Hartnett, Relina Ryan, Hannah Lyons, a national school teacher, Hannah O'Carroll, Nora Healy and Miss Randall, Active, agent, act, active ladies in the irregular movement in Kilmare have been brought to Tralee and lodged in the county jail. By March of that year, March 1923, a notice from the Kerry Command of the National Army recorded three categories of people in the county. Number one, loyal and open support, those who were loyal to, to the uh, Free State Government. Uh, diffidence and apathy born of fear of the irregulars and a desire for peace and open hostility. Open hostility, it noted, is mostly displayed by the female. March and April 1923 were also the terror months in Kerry, with civil war violence reaching its nadir. March began with an attack on Cahar Saivin by anti-treaty IRA and in, included several of the worst atrocities of the war, including the Nocknagoshal mine bomb in which five Free State soldiers were killed. In quick succession, more atrocities followed, the Ballysidi massacre, in which nine prisoners from Kerry No. 1 Brigade were taken from Ballymullen Jail in Tralee to Ballysidi, tied around a mine, uh, which was then exploded. Eight were killed, one escaped. On the same night at Countess Bridge near Killarney, four more anti-treaty Republican men were uh, killed by a mine explosion, although one man did survive and escape. And on March 12th, five members of the unit of the Kerry No. 3 Brigade of the IRA were taken from the local workhouse, which was being used as a prison, brought to Bahas near Karasivin, shot in the leg reputedly before being laid over a mine which was detonated, killing all five men. 
In April, then, you had the siege of Castmelk Melkin Cage, caves in North Kerry in which Aero Lines and two, three other IRA men died, and those who were captured were later executed. These incidents were to have a traumatic and long-lasting impact on Kerry and on the anti-treaty women, even if by summer there was little fire, fight left in the demoralized Republican ranks. It was the women who were to the detriment of their physical, mental and emotional well-being. And I would agree with what Leanne said, that we have to look beyond the physical in terms of violence. We also have to look at the mental and emotional impacts uh, of, what is, of what is happening with the women. Um, the pension application made for Molly O'Sullivan of the Kilflame Company of Common Amman reflects them, this. A member from 1919, during 1922 and 23, she had the charge of an irregular camp at Ballyma Woods, from which an active service unit operated. During this time, she was in grave danger doing this work and many times under fire, uh, it was reported. Her brother George O'Shea, captain of the Kilflin IRA, was one of those men killed at Ballycidi, as well as two others, Tim Toomey and Aero Lyons, killed at Ballycidi and Cashmelkin, respectively. One reference letter on her pension file states, and I quote, her sufferings were about this time were very great. Subsequent events at Clashmelkin and Ballycidi unnerved her. She was taken to a mental home in late 1923. Her brother Dan brought her home a harmless lunatic in 1925 and has kept her at home since. She died in 1949, never having recovered her mental health. She wasn't the only one so impact, impacted. Mary Walsh of the Churchill near Tralee branch had to take charge of the remains of her brother John Walsh killed at Ballycidi and owing, according to her pension, application to ill health from the effects of hard work in the cause of Irish freedom, she would no longer be active after that. The scene as Walsh and the other women who took charge of the remains at Ballycidi was horrendous. As the Cork examiner described, the dead men were, and I quote, mangled beyond recognition. Portion of their limbs and flesh with pieces of clothing were found adhering to trees and strewn along the roads and fields over 100 yards from the scene. However, recognition of their activism, their experiences and their trauma would be hard won uh, and slow in coming for these women. John Joe, no surname included, in a letter included in the pension application of Mary Frances Hannifin of the Tralee branch, who claimed to have been an official dispatch carrier for the whole uh, Kerry brigades during the Civil War and was on the run for months, according to her application, said to Mary in his letter, even though you believed that you carried Ireland on your back through the tan and civil war, through the tans and the civil war, you will find things very different when it comes to the board. And it was not just the board who sought to dismiss, dismiss the histories of these diehard militant women, their activism and militancy, the violence and trauma they endured, and the legacies of their contribution. In August 1923, when things were much quieter, W.T. Cosgrave, president of the executive, visited a now quiet Tralee. Republican girls, however, were determined to demonstrate their continued opposition. Here he encountered the type of woman he had condemned in January 1923 as diehards, women, he said, whose ecstasies at their extremists can find no outlet so satisfying as destruction. Era, uh, the newspaper reported, as he arrived in Tralee, about a quarter uh, of an hour before the meeting he was supposed to attend with his supporters, a procession passed through the crowded streets. It was led by two Kerry girls carrying a huge black flag, bearing the words in white lettering, our martyred Kerrymen. And you can see from the slide, there's a whole long description 
of the procession uh, with the girls marching in front of coffins and carrying scrolls with the names of all those killed in the various massacres uh, during March and April. The election in August 1923 also demonstrated the continuing tension between the National Army and Republican girls, as they were termed, especially during the campaign. A report by an anti-treaty Albina uh, Broderick or Gobnet Nuvruther, who herself, as Leanne mentioned, was, had been wounded in an encounter with Free State troops, um, in, uh, as she wrote in Aaron, noted that at, Cahers at the Cahersaivin meeting, Captain Foley, and it's interesting in, in lots of these reports, the names of the men uh, who, who violated the women and who attacked the women are actually mentioned. And this is aspects of that insider or intimate violence. Um, Ellie Cotter, uh, who mentioned about being tapped on the jaw by a, a, a gun in, in attack on her home, mentioned Gaffney, Jeremiah Gaffney of the Free State, who would himself be executed for killing a young boy later in the year. Uh, Captain Foley had to be removed from the meeting he had previously kicked and ill-treated some of our girls and women, while in Sneem, the military pelted the Republican girls with eggs, struck them, and used foul and filthy language. However, these displays of militant female resistance was often dismissed as of little impact. As an August report from the Kerry Command noted, relations between uh, the army, uh, between the people and the army are mainly cordial. Open antagonism is displaced in some places, but it's generally the work of women. A loaded sentence here of dismissal and diminishment of the work of women. As Louise Ryan has shown in her article on Furies and Diehards, newspaper reports of militant anti-treaty women represented them as disorderly and disruptive, and their militancy as a way of questioning the manliness, courage, and strength of anti-treaty men. This new state was now about the work of nation building now that the Civil War was more or less over the work of real pro-treaty men and the bitterness of militant women, the die-hard gun girls uh, or the Republican girls belonged in a soon to be disremembered past. McGrath and Bukian in discussing trauma stories as re resilience in the Irish and Armenian contexts note that mainstream commemorations play on strategy, strategies of resilience, endurance, continuity, adaptation, intransigence and inclusion to construct and reinforce dominant narratives that tie together identity and nation. And so it was that the sacrifice of the men during the trauma of civil war, during that brother against brother, as we still term it, is, remember, is remembered and commemorated uh, uh, and acknowledged at Knocknagoshal, although controversially, at Clashmelkin, at Countess Bridge and Bally Seedy, uh, a memory of sacrifice and of some uh, reconciliation in the pursuit of nation building, which of course is the work of men. But nowhere is female militancy, contribution, experience of violence and trauma of civil war commemorated. Even here in the Ballysidi monument, woman exists as passive mourner, not active militant. Uh, and nowhere is it acknowledged what the women did before, during and after Ballysidi. In answer to the question Clark posed about using a gender framework for understanding these violent and transformative years, I would argue that in not recognizing the gendered legacy impacts of female narratives of civil war, we lose insights into the tensions and fears in the new state about militant political and vocal women. And that also, um, and also some of the reasons why the post-war state attempted to silence, contain, and domesticate its female population. 
the threatening militant female diehard had to be obliterated from macro and indeed micro narratives of revolution and war. And all of the books that have been written about the civil war in, in Kerry acknowledge the women, but in passing and often just as the girls who helped the men, similarly to uh, um, uh, past narratives of the War of Independence. So in remembering her, that female militant diehard, this helps transform historical memories and narratives, as well as our understandings, our understandings of identity, inclusion and belonging. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.